Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We've learned a lot of lessons in the last six months, and now as we head into the general election and flu season, we'll see how people apply those lessons. And the stakes are high. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Ada County Clerk Phil McGrain tells us what voters need to know before the November 3rd general election, whether you're planning to vote in person or by mail. But first, we've learned a lot about the novel coronavirus in the six months since the pandemic first started affecting Idaho. Dr. Megan McInerney, pulmonologist with St. Alphonsus in Boise, joined me this week to talk about the long-term effects of the virus and what we still don't know. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been about six months since we've seen the first COVID-19 confirmed case here in Treasure Valley. Uh, since then, what kind of long-term effects are you seeing from patients who were uh, infected early on in the pandemic? Yeah, so th there is a term called COVID long haulers, which I'm sure many people have heard about. And it's a term that's being applied to these patients who've had COVID um, but are still struggling with some longer term symptoms. And some of those symptoms include things like feeling really short of breath for a long period of time. Um, but we also see symptoms like neurological uh, effects. Some people just describe being in a fog and really struggling with getting a clear mind. And then we also see some more defined symptoms in the heart process, it's called a myocarditis, where the actual heart muscle is having some inflammation and there's some cardiac effects. And so it's, it's hard. It's hard to know who is going to be affected by this long haulers process, right? So we know because of the numbers, the more likely people who might die from the disease, but we don't yet know the people who are more likely to struggle from the long haulers kind of longer term symptoms. Um, and I actually try to spin that a little bit to say, well, and that is one of the reasons why we try not to take this attitude of, oh, if you're young and in college, it doesn't really matter if you get this. If you're a runner, it doesn't really matter if you get this. If you're healthy, it doesn't matter if you get this because some people have very long-term effects from it. And to be clear, those long-term effects aren't just limited to people who are older and have pre-existing conditions, right? Exactly, exactly. So we're seeing some higher rates than younger women. Um, and I know even yesterday, I heard somebody talking about a friend who was a young, healthy, super active, athletic woman who got uh, COVID and is still struggling you know, to walk a block without feeling short of breath. Um, I've talked to some of my pulmonary patients, which yes, they had underlying pulmonary disease, but now their lives are so much different now because of the long-term effects from COVID. So they're really struggling. Six months seems like a long time, especially if you're six, but it, especially if you're sick, but it really isn't that long in a person's life. Do we fully understand what this might look like for these long haul patients in a year or five years? Yeah, and we don't, right? Because we just haven't been 
around this virus long enough to know. So as is the case with any new disease, we're going to keep learning about it and we're going to be keep learning about the long-term effects. We have a better understanding since you know the beginning of the pandemic of what it looks like acutely in the hospital and patients who are sick right now um, experiencing it. But I mean, you bring up a great point. I can't, and that's sometimes frustrating. I can't say to a patient, this will get better in two years or this will get better in eight months because we don't yet know. When you look at the lungs or the tissue of patients who aren't affected, are you seeing marks of permanent damage or is it temporary inflammation? Right, so depends on the patient. Some people develop more permanent damage and can actually get what's called fibrosis, which is just the medical term for scarring in the tissue. So the way that I describe the lung tissue to my patients is that I like to think of it as bubble wrap. They're individual pockets of air, um, but there's space in between where it's connected. And so a lot of the inflammation that happens um, in acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is the severe effects of what will happen in COVID pneumonia, is that you get inflammation in between those air sacs, that space in between the air sacs called the interstitium. And sometimes that inflammation progresses to scarring. And so if you think about it, just like if, you're, if your arm tissue gets scarred, you have a permanent mark there and the tissue isn't the same. If that happens in the lungs, the tissue isn't the same. It can't transfer oxygen as well as it would have been able to previously. So we do know that some people do progress to that fibrotic process. And to be honest, those are often the people who end up dying in the ICU. But we also know that sometimes people will progress to a less severe form of the fibrotic process, the fibrosis or the scarring, and they'll have longer term effects from, from a lung perspective. But we don't know who, we don't know who that happens in. We can't predict it. You know, understanding that COVID-19 is a novel virus, a novel situation for you as a pulmonologist, are there any corollaries with known diseases like influenza or pneumonia where you do see this fibrosis in the lungs and how it affects long-term patients? It's a really good question. Um, we know that some patients who, separate from coronavirus, some patients who develop acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, will have longer-term effects, but the majority of those patients will get better at six months or a year out. Um, so sometimes acute respiratory distress syndrome will happen because of a pneumonia, um, but, but can we say, oh, it's more likely to happen in a pneumococcal pneumonia uh, or influenza pneumonia? Not necessarily. Again, it depends on the patient and it depends on the patient's, how the patient's body responds to this. And that's a you know, big part of the COVID kind of response is that the part that makes people really sick is the inflammatory response, is the body's response to the infection. So the inflammation that develops in the lungs and the heart muscle and the vessels, those kinds of things. How is that different from influenza? We've heard so much about how we're entering flu season and how that might have compounding effects on the hospital system. But when we look at the differences between COVID-19 and influenza on how it affects the body, what are the differences? Well, they're very similar in some ways, right? And so this is the this is going to be part of the tricky thing is that I think people who experience influenza and COVID can have body aches, fevers, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, shortness of breath. That occurs in both influenza and COVID. 
Some people in COVID will have loss of sense of taste and smell. That doesn't really happen in influenza. Some, there's more, you know, rates of stroke and other blood clots in COVID. But as far as just the symptoms that a person experiences at the beginning of this of the disease, they're very similar. And so it's going to be very important for people to be in touch with that and to recognize those symptoms and to get tested um, if they have those symptoms. Um, as far as kind of the bigger picture effects of influenza and COVID, uh, we know that the, the process of COVID, at least when people are critically ill, and I'm an ICU doctor, so this is where I'm seeing these patients, when they're really sick enough to be in the ICU, they're in the ICU much longer from COVID in general than from influenza. The death rate from the two, as far as percent of people who get infected to dying is about the same, right? It's a little bit higher with COVID, but it's very similar. Um, so those are some of the differences. Um, and you asked a little bit, Melissa, about, about what, what the impact on the healthcare system will be, and that's where we're most concerned. It's really important we are coming together as all healthcare systems in the Valley to say, get your flu vaccines. Please get your influenza vaccines. We don't yet know if the influenza season is going to be better or worse as far as numbers in the setting of COVID. Some people, uh, we know that in some Southern countries, we've seen that the influenza season wasn't as bad as far as pure numbers of infections because people were wearing masks, socially distancing, washing their hands, all interventions that help to prevent spread of any respiratory virus. And then the healthcare system, we are really at St. Alphonsus, which is where I work, we are really bracing for this double whammy effect of having a lot of people come in with COVID and a lot of people come in with influenza. And that is going to potentially strain our healthcare system. So we are always here for anybody who comes through the door. We wanna take care of anybody who comes through the door. But if we've got half of our ICU taken up with COVID patients and, and influenza patients, and that makes it that much harder for us from a manpower perspective, a bed capacity perspective to take care of everybody else who's coming into our doors. What specific steps is St. Alphonsus doing to prepare for what we keep hearing might be a very long and difficult winter? Yeah, we are uh, having a lot of planning about how to uh, combine our efforts in, in COVID response. So we have what are called the FURY clinics, the fever and URI clinics where people have been coming for COVID testing. We're rolling influenza right into that to say, here we are. We are now in the habit of being able to test you when you drive up in your car. And now we can do the same kind of thing for influenza. Um, we have ramped up our, some of the testing platforms for coronavirus can also be used to test influenza. So just ramping up those supplies as best we can. Some of our supplies are limited by national stocks, right? A lot of people don't realize that, but we're limited by what's available. Um, and then really encouraging all of our patients and every member of the community to get a flu vaccine. And then, and I say this over and over again, I'll probably say it multiple times during the interview, wear your mask, socially distance, wash your hands, avoid big crowds. So just continuing with the same kind of education, but, but we're talking about it all the time, planning for it. Uh, we are going to be as ready as we possibly can be, but it's also up to the community to do their part. 
All right, Dr. Megan McInerney, thank you so much for your time and thank you for everything you do for the community. Absolutely, thank you. Coinciding with the beginning of flu season is the general election. And with a high-profile presidential race and COVID concerns, more and more Idahoans are wondering what November 3rd will look like. On Friday, I spoke to Ada County Clerk Phil McGrain about how he and other clerks across the state are preparing. Thanks so much for joining us today. In the lead up to the general election, what are you hearing from other county clerks across the, the state? It, this is a, a major undertaking. You know, presidential election in any year is a major undertaking, but with COVID, pandemic, and just the intensity of the attention on this election this year, uh, we're feeling it from every aspect and way earlier than we normally would for an election like this. Talk to me about that because you are starting to hear from voters and it's not even October yet. We are, you know, next week we will be finalizing all the polling locations, uh, getting our early voting plans and everything out. And we've actually had a huge surge of calls and everything else, want people wanting to know, where do I go to vote on election day? Uh, we don't normally see that so early in this process. I think a lot of it is the absentee election. We have more people voting that way and people voting different than they have in the past. And so we're doing everything we can to get information out there. Uh, hopefully by the end of next week across the state, we will have most of the information that voters are looking for so they can make plans, you know, leading up to the November 3rd election. And specifically, you're talking about places like polling place locations, or are, is there more information that voters still need? You know, I think it, it depends on how, your level of engagement. Uh, one of the things about a presidential election, some people only vote every four years when the president is on the ballot. So we're going to see more participation for this election than we've seen for any other going back until 2016 and the last presidential election. So part of it is just voters wanting to be informed. There's a much larger national conversation going on. I think, Melissa, you have a lot of questions that will relate to that national conversation. and How does that impact us here in Idaho? And so what we're trying to do is respond to those questions, whether it's about the Postal Service, whether it's about in-person voting, how it's all going to work because of the pandemic. And so we're trying to answer questions and some that we've never had to answer before, things like face masks and our are we cleaning the polls? And so we're all trying to adapt and adjust while also just doing the normal business of preparing for the election, getting the materials ready to go, and making sure everything will be staged where it needs to be when people show up to vote. So let's start with the sheer number of ballot requests that you're receiving for absentee ballots. You can speak to Ada County, but are these counties prepared for the number of ballots that they are going to have to mail out? It is a major transition that we're going through this year in terms of how people vote. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the first time that many people are voting via absentee. Um, as you know, back in May, we conducted an all absentee election. That was where we really kind of trial by fire and learned really quickly and had to pivot in terms of our infrastructure. Hopefully we've learned lessons from the May election and have had to adapt. Um, I know here in Ada County, we've installed new equipment and put in new processes to handle the volume. Just to give a sense of the scale, in 2016, we had just over 29,000 people vote via absentee here in Ada County. Uh, next week, when we do our very first mailing of local ballots, we're going to mail over 115,000 in just one day, uh, with many more to come after that. And so it's a huge shift in our business practices. Um, as I really look at it, you know, always planning elections, of a major event planning operation, uh, but now we're almost running two elections at the exact same time. One really big absentee election, along with 
our normal in-person early voting election that we'll be conducting on the third. And so trying to do both of those at the same time is a huge challenge. I know clerks throughout the state are working on making adjustments. And, you know, I know even in Kootenai County, they're adjusting how they mail out their ballots for this election. A number of clerks, including us, are implementing electronic poll books at the polls, um, all in an effort to adapt to the conditions that we're under for this election. There are 44 counties in Idaho, and it sounds like different clerks are taking different approaches. Should those processes be more uniform? You know, overall, I think we do actually have fairly uniformity uh, in terms of how we handle elections. I think you will see that throughout the state. One of the challenges, though, there's a big difference across the state, um, just in terms of our geography and everything else. Um, Ada County, people may not realize this, but at least in terms of registered voters, we're three times the size of Canyon County, the next largest one. Uh, so there's just things that we face that are different. But when you compare Ada County to, say, Clark County that has less than 500 registered voters, um, none of our precincts are even that small here in Ada County. And so, the, but their voters are distributed all throughout a large geographic space. And so we're having to adjust to different things. And so I think some of that, that difference is noteworthy. I do think, you know, during the special session, you saw an effort by the county clerks to unify to look for some standardization in terms of how we handle things. Some of that was accepted and supported and some of it wasn't. Um, and so I, I do think overall it's uniform, but there are gonna be some examples like consolidation of polling locations, I think is one of the most noteworthy. You see some counties doing that, you see other counties not. Um, I think that's really has to do with the adaptation to coronavirus and everything we're facing in this election. But does that lack of uniformity contribute to confusion among voters and potentially not trusting the process, especially when that's been such a big part of the national conversation lately? You know, I, Melissa, I don't think it does. I think uh, because, you know, any individual voter is interacting with their county and their county clerk and the businesses, I, I hope and I certainly encourage all my peers and have been throughout the process to communicate with their voters. I know here in Ada County, we'll be sending out a postcard to let every voter remind them where they go to vote or how to request an absentee ballot. And so as long as we're communicating with our voters, there shouldn't be any confusion. I think that's one of the key pieces and why we're talking here today is just to try and get those answers out there. There's a lot of questions. And so the more answers we can get to people, the better. Um, IdahoVotes.gov this year with the pandemic has served as a huge resource for everyone in the state of Idaho to really to do the centralizing you're talking about in terms of requesting absentee ballots or registering to vote. And so hopefully for voters, it isn't as confusing as we see on the national stage. But let's talk about some of the things that voters do need to know. And as you said, you've already seen a record-breaking number of absentee ballot requests. If people haven't yet requested a absentee ballot, is it too late to do so? Absolutely not. We encourage anyone who uh, feels it'll be safest for them because they have concerns about their health or anything else or just the convenience or they may be traveling. An absentee ballot is a great way to vote for this election. The majority of voters in Idaho will likely vote via absentee. We're already in terms of the numbers uh, and many places we're over 50 percent already. Uh, the easiest thing to do is go to IdahoVotes.gov. You can complete an absentee ballot request form there. Also, if you need to, you can update your registration as well, which is one of the key parts of this process is making sure your information is current. So we know that we're mailing it to the right place and the right person uh, when those ballots go out. And to be clear, Idaho allows for same day registration at the polls, but that deadline is different if you're requesting an absentee ballot, correct? Yeah, Idaho, we will have in-person voting. So, you know, that's one of the questions we've heard a lot of. There was discussion during the special session. 
There will be in-person voting on November 3rd in all 44 counties in the state. Um, and you can go to your polling location and register to vote there. I will say based on the circumstances we have here, we would really prefer people register to vote in advance of the election. It will make it easier for the voter and easier for us if they do. Um, and a key thing, as you mentioned, Melissa, if you do wanna request an absentee ballot, you have to be registered to be able to do that. October 9th is the last day to be able to register in advance of the election. So go in and do that now. Also, that'll ensure there's enough time for the postal process in terms of getting the ballot mailed to you, as well as getting it mailed back in. But uh, the deadline for absentee requests is October 23rd, but that October 9th date is key if you're registering, if you've moved in the last four years, you've changed your name, anything's changed, that ninth date is key to getting that updated. Uh, I'm curious for people who might not realize that they have a problem with their voter registration, that perhaps it's not updated or they thought that they had, they had updated it after a move and then didn't, are they going to be notified that there is a problem with their absentee ballot request? Uh, certainly, if we get it, we, if we receive a request and the information's not current, we will notify the voter. Um, I think in most instances, they'll learn that when they're trying to complete the application on IdahoVotes.gov, and so they'll know to fix it right then and there. Um, so I think that won't be so much of an issue. We are always trying to communicate with voters throughout the process. Can people still early vote in person at their election offices? Uh, yes, there will still be early voting. It depends on each county. So contact your county clerk's office to see where it is. It may be your local county courthouse or an administration building. Here in Ada County, we have multiple early voting locations, which will all be set up. And same day registration will be available at those early voting sites as well. If people do decide to drop their absentee ballots in the mailbox, by when should they have it in the mail to ensure that it gets to their county clerk by November 3rd? Yeah, it's recommended by the Postal Service to mail your ballot two weeks in advance or to get it in the request in at least two weeks in advance. Um, I believe all of the counties have it set up so that you can drop off your ballot if you get too close to election day and you're worried about the Postal Service. Here in Ada County, we're adding multiple drop boxes. I know other counties are doing that as well. So contact your county clerk if you have any concerns. Also, a key question that we're getting a lot of right now is, say you change your mind, you get an absentee ballot, um, you decide, no, I really want to vote in person, or you misplace it, or you're concerned about timing. Yes, you can still go to the polls and vote. Uh, the poll workers know that you requested it, but haven't returned it. Only vote one ballot, though. Don't try to vote two, or we'll have more conversations than you want to have with us. Um, but you can still switch and vote on election day if the circumstances require that. Yeah, you know, let's talk about election day. Are you confident that all the counties in Idaho will have enough poll workers? You know, I think at this point we should. I can't speak for all counties. What I'll say is we've put out a call for poll workers here in Ada County, along with some others around the state. And I know I talked to Christina Glasscock earlier this week in Twin Falls, and the response has been overwhelming. Uh, we have way more people volunteering to be poll workers than we have spots at the polls. So it's a great problem for us to be having for this election. We've had people come from all over. Uh, it, we've even had some people reach out from Seattle who wanted to come and work the polls here because they don't have polling locations in Seattle. Um, thankfully, we have enough local people that we should be covered. I think that's largely true, uh, but I can't speak. I mean, each, you know, the population's different among each of the 44 counties, uh, but we should have poll workers. The other challenge we're facing is just finding polling places that will work given the circumstances. So you will see some consolidation probably in all counties, but hopefully it won't be too disruptive for most voters.
Um, what are you doing here in Ada County to ensure that both poll workers and voters will be safe on November 3rd? That's a great question. You know, the pandemic is an added layer of challenges. And so one of the things we are asking all voters who show up to the polls to please wear a mask. Um, we're going to try and maintain social distancing. In terms of our locating of polling locations, I think a crucial thing has been our partnership with the Boise and West Ada School Districts. Uh, they're going to be allowing us to use the gymnasiums at the school so we can spread out the voting booths, uh, provide spacing. I know our office, as well as many of the other clerk's office, are providing a writing utensils specific to each voter so the voters don't have to share the pen in the voting booth as they would in the past. Um, and all of our poll workers are being required to wear face masks and are being provided face shields. And we'll be doing cleanings periodically throughout the day. So uh, we've worked closely in partnership with Central District Health here locally to come up with some good business practices to keep both poll workers and voters safe throughout Election Day at the polls. We've been told since the beginning of this to stay home if we're sick. What if somebody is planning to vote in person, but come November 3rd, start showing symptoms of COVID-19? Is there a contingency plan to allow them to vote while still keeping everybody else safe? Yeah, that's a, a great question in this situation is we want to keep everyone health. We have this overlay of voting and the pandemic at the same time. So uh, one, we've been working with Central District Health. So as they're doing their contact tracing leading up to the election, uh, they are providing information on how to request an absentee ballot all the way up to that point. And then, yes, we are working on some contingency plans to provide a voting location specific for people who are actively positive with COVID-19. So they'll be able to vote uh, where we have uh, much more heightened precautions to keep the poll workers and those working with them safe. Um, it's not something we're going to be advertising how largely. We're really going to be working with the health district to make sure we provide uh, a secure spot that we can keep everybody healthy at. Most voters should just head to the regular polling place to be able to vote. And if they have any concerns uh, leading up to election day to contact us and we'll work with voters to make sure we can keep them safe as well as those in their community safe. You know, one last question. The president has repeatedly questioned the integrity of mail-in ballots, and I wanted to get your response to this, especially as somebody who has overseen multiple uh, absentee ballot counting operations over the course of many elections. No, I, one of the things I want to highlight, there's a huge national conversation happening about this election and a lot of concerns among the public, and I hear those on a regular basis. Uh, one of the distinctions I want to make is we are here in Idaho, and Idaho has some very good laws and good business practices in place. We're not necessarily the same as other states. A great example is we use first-class postage and have always been using first-class postage uh, to get ballots to voters and get ballots back from voters. Um, so we're not anticipating any of the delays. Neither is the Postal Service here uh, in our state. And so that's one key thing. We also have practices to verify signatures on absentee ballots. Um, we are providing secure Dropbox locations. Um, something new that we're adding here in Ada County, we'll be monitoring all of those with cameras uh, throughout the entire process. So we're layering on different levels of security to ensure the integrity of the process. I do have confidence that here in the state of Idaho, things will go smoothly and your vote will be safe. We're working hard to sure, make sure everyone has the opportunity to vote and that they can have confidence that their vote counted and that the outcomes that come out of this are ones they can trust. Whether the person you voted for is the winner or not, we want everyone to be able to trust the results at the end of the night. Now, I can't speak to all the other states that are working on this. You know, I'm hopeful that everyone is making the adjustments, but a good example of that is our special legislative session where 
We're tweaking our rules to make sure we can do the very best to make sure this election goes smoothly and that the public will have the results right after the election like they would expect. And so there's a lot of folks just like me working very hard here in our office and throughout the state to make sure this election goes smoothly. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Melissa. After our interview, McGrain emphasized that while election workers can ask voters to wear masks because of federal voting laws, they can't turn away people who aren't wearing them or who are showing COVID symptoms. If you're concerned about COVID, the safest way, he said, is to vote by mail. We'll see you back here next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.